Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Isaiah 42. You heard it just a few moments ago, a few verses of it anyway. Tim read it as our call to worship. But we're returning to that same chapter, Isaiah 42. And now we're going to read verses 1 through 9. Tim had read verses 8 through 12 as our call to worship, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. These will provide a little bit of Old Testament context for our sermon passage, which comes from Acts chapter 26. So in a moment, we'll turn over to Acts chapter 26. But first, let's hear from Isaiah chapter 42. Hear now the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. Thus says the God, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Amen. The prophet Isaiah, through the Holy Spirit, speaks of things that are yet to come. They will spring forth, but before that, he tells us what they are. Things that will change. He lists them out. My great king, my great prophet, my great priest will come forth with glory and with power. And he will be gentle and kind. Lowly and meek and humble. He will bring justice on the earth, tearing down the oppressor and the powerful, taking us by the hand and leading us to where there is peace. He will tear the gates off the prisons and set free the prisoners. He will shine light in the darkness. He will cast away the false gods in the images. In a word, he will bring the new heavens and the new earth. When Jesus comes, then comes peace. With this in mind, turned over to our sermon text, Acts chapter 26. We're going to read verses 1 through 23. Acts chapter 26, verses 1 through 23. This is just Paul's little message to Agrippa. It's coming to us in the middle of this event in which Agrippa is sitting to hear the Apostle Paul on behalf of Festus, the Roman governor. 
And Paul here in these verses speaks to Agrippa directly about who he is and what his experience has been. And as he does so, he presents us with this powerful gospel message that we need to hear today. Acts chapter 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints shut, I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand, 
witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Amen. And amen. Mild-mannered Clark Kent would watch helplessly as all the bad guys attacked. He was stuck in his suit and tie and powerless to respond. And then he would think, when the hour was most desperate and the moment most dark, this looks like a job for Superman. He would disappear into the nearest phone booth. There was a little box. Never mind. And inside, he would take off the suit and out would emerge Superman to save the dead. Friends, we often look around and we see dark and desperate days that bring us to the edge of hope and make us wonder, what should we do? Paul teaches us that we should disappear into our prayer closet, not our cell phones, and find there, stripped of all of our earthly hopes and ambitions, a hero, a savior, not ourselves hidden inside, but Jesus Christ, risen and reigning. You see, the gospel truth in front of us this morning in this text as Paul preaches it to Agrippa, is that Jesus alone brings peace. Jesus alone brings peace. And so, my friends, we must learn to bring Jesus wherever we go. Since it is Jesus alone who brings peace, let us be those who bring Jesus everywhere. Now let's think about this a little bit and notice at the beginning of our text in verses 1 through 3, Paul says that he is very happy in a very unhappy circumstance. You see that there? Verse, one, uh, verse 2, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews. This is an odd state of being. For Paul to be happy in that moment. You see, he's being accused by his own countrymen. They are seeking his death. They see him as a traitor and they have cast him out of his own nationality, his own people. He is seen as a traitor to his own nation. He is homeless, abandoned by those among whom he was raised and by whom he was expected to be something great. On the other hand, he is at the mercy of the Roman governors who seem incompetent or clueless. There is this great imperial power overshadowing his nation. And there is this great conflict of cultures. Paul has become this poor pawn between the two warring worlds. The Jews want him dead and the Romans don't know what to do with him. And he is stuck between these two powers as the Jews and the Romans fight among themselves, and he has become the latest turf they fight over. These two peoples have seldom gotten along and often fought, and now he finds himself in the grip of this trial. 
he sees in Agrippa, though, something happy. You see, Agrippa, on the one hand, could appear to be a bridge between these two troublesome peoples. Agrippa is a king in the area, but he is powerless according to Roman law. As a king, he really just answers to the local Roman governor. He is a figurehead. So in that way, he's not that helpful or useful. He can't change the Roman governor's decision. He can't contribute meaningfully to Paul's attempt to go to Rome. In fact, Paul's already got his ticket. This is an entirely redundant meaning for the Apostle Paul. His mission was to get to Rome, and he's got his pass. He appealed to Caesar, to Caesar he is going to go. It's all settled. Paul doesn't need this hearing. He does not find happiness in this moment because of the practical outcome. What is more, King Agrippa is an Idumean, a descendant of Edom, a descendant of Esau. He is not beloved by the Jews. He has very little influence among them. Speaking to King Agrippa on this particular day should not make Paul happy. It's a waste of his time. It has no possible good outcome. It lends nothing to his judicial case. It lends nothing to his influence on the Jews. Why do it? What is more, why be happy about it? Because, my friends, Paul is not worried about getting out of prison or getting to Rome. He knows those things will happen. He is worried about preaching Christ to sinners. And he was just handed an audience. Dear friends, I hope that the picture I have painted for you of Paul's circumstance sounds shockingly familiar. Do we not sit as a church in an age of incredible conflict, in which cultures are on collision course, in which worlds are at war? Shall we pick any of the objects and play today? Foreign policy, domestic policy, politics, pandemics, baseball. My friends, do we not as Americans find relentless and endless things to fight over? There was an article in Mirror Orthodoxy recently that was entitled The Six-Way Fracturing of Evangelicalism. It's not just our world. It is the church as well. We live in an age of war and of conflict, of division and discord. Familiar to the church in Corinth as we heard yesterday. Familiar to Paul before King Agrippa in this day. And yet, there is something transcendent. Something other to which we should and can aspire To see this hour of tumult and of trial and of heartbreak as an opportunity for the gospel. My friends, is this an opportunity for the right to win or the left to win? I don't know. But it is an opportunity for Christ to triumph over all. We have an opportunity to preach Christ. And this makes Paul happy. Happy on the darkest day. Happy in the worst circumstances. Because he can preach Christ. Now there are three reasons. Which we see illustrated in Paul's speech. For how he can have such happiness. In the grip of such unhappy circumstances. These three things all revolve around the person. And work of Jesus Christ. First. That Jesus is his hope. Paul sees Jesus as true hope. In verses 4 through 8, he recounts his youth. 
and how he was a strict Pharisee, indeed a faithful Pharisee. He notes that he has lived in Jerusalem, that most Pharisaical of all cities, from his earliest days. And that he was brought up in the strictest fashion of Phariseeism. And then he notes in verses 6 and 7 that it is his faithfulness to being a Pharisee that has brought him into conflict with the Pharisees. He believes that everything they have hoped for has been fulfilled in Christ. And this puts him on collision course with the Jewish nation. Everything that the Jew has hoped for, according to verse 7, has been attained. Christ has done it. He is the fulfillment of their hope. He is true hope. He even says to Agrippa, why do you find it incredible that God should raise the dead? You know, God who hung the sun in the sky. You know, God who breathed oxygen into Adam's lungs on that first day, having once been a lump of dust. Why is it incredible that he could raise the dead? In the raising of Christ from the dead, Paul argues, every ambition of the Pharisaical faith had been fulfilled. Surely for us too, friends, we can look around and see the religious ambitions of humanity. The religious appetites that you and I have. That we long for a kingdom of righteousness. What did the Pharisees of Paul's day want more than anything else? A world run right. A world without Romans. A world where the Jews could be Jewish and live out their faithful obedience to the law of Moses. Surely this too rings some bells. How many of us look at our marriage and just say, all I want is to be fulfilled and happy? I just want a good marriage. How many of us look at our children and say, I just want them to grow up and be wonderful? How many of us look at our nation and say, I just want you guys to agree on something, anything? No, not that. How many of us want a world run right? How many of us long for a kingdom of righteousness? The Apostle Paul says to us, do you not know you have it? Do you not know there's a kingdom of righteousness and a world run right? It's called the kingdom of God. It's called Christ come crucified for sinners, raised again from the dead for everlasting life. My friends, we look too short and too cheaply at this world. Wishing to see the full expression of heaven on earth, a right desire, but one that comes short when we desire it outside of Christ. We have quoted long and rightly that phrase from the prophet, sin is a reproach to any people, but righteousness exalts the nation. But why have we supposed that such righteousness is obtained by our obedience and excellence? It is not so. Is it obtained by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ? That righteousness that would exalt this nation is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not this nation's conformity to our expectations and dreams. They must hear about Jesus. He is the hope that we need for our homes, our hearts, our country. He is true hope. 
My friends, let us not despair on these dark days. When everything seems divided and hopeless and the two shall never meet, it is not true. We have true hope. His name is Jesus Christ. But secondly, the Apostle Paul sees Jesus not only as true hope, but as heavenly king. As heavenly king. In verses 9 and following, he recounts not his early days, but his adult age, in which the Apostle Paul went up and about the business of persecuting those who followed the name of Jesus of Nazareth. You see, in his maturity and in his wisdom, Paul had understood that this man had been crucified and come to nothing. And so, he shut up his followers in prison. He put them to death and voted against them that they should perish. He pursued them as far as Damascus to foreign cities, compelling them to betray their faith in Christ. That is what he means by blaspheme in verse 11. He raged against them that he should destroy them, chief of their persecutors, haters of their Christ. And then, at midday, on a dirty road to Damascus, When the sun was at its peak and in its full strength, the sun was eclipsed, not by the shadow of the moon, but by a light far more radiant and splendid. A heavenly light. A light of glory. Brighter than the sun. Blotting out all the light of this world so that only the light of heaven was apparent. And a voice came from heaven to earth. And he heard the words in his own language. We used to joke at Geneva College, all the Hebrew professors were closer to God because they spoke his language. I don't know what language God speaks, but I know that since Pentecost, he speaks yours. My friends, he is full of love and compassion, a God who is willing from the very heavens to reveal himself to us. To shine the radiant glory of His greatness down upon us. And to speak to us in our own language. This is why we as churches bother with preachers and preaching. Half my job is learning your language. Because the other half of my job is giving you Jesus in your language. He speaks our tongue. He reveals His light. He is a heavenly king, there high and lifted up, higher than the midday sun, brighter than all of its light and strength. This is what Paul sees when he sees Jesus. In this world, there are many powers, and all of them are subject to Christ. In this world, there is much strength pitting itself one against another as worlds go to war and cultures clash and collide. And yet, Christ reigns over all. My friends, happiness in these tough times is rooted in our firm sight of Christ as the true hope, the answer to these problems. We fear neither power nor poverty, for He is true hope. In like manner, we do not fear the oppression and persecution of this world. We need not. For He is the High King. And the empires and emperors of this age come and go by His leave. He sits enthroned. And yet, this greatness, this glory, this hope, 
Paul sees thirdly is also healing. He is healing of the nations. In verse 14, this voice speaks in Paul's language and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you attacking my body, the church, my people? Then he adds this refrain that Luke did not give us in his gospel. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A great little Anglo-Saxon lesson for you. What is a goad? It's not that tricky. It's a sharp stick that makes you go. Because once upon a time, the past tense of the verb to go was to goad. It makes the animal go from heaven. The hope of the world speaks to Paul in Hebrew and says, Do you not know all your sin and all your suffering and all your sorrows are just me poking you to salvation? It is hard for you to resist my love. This is why we read from the Apostle Paul in Corinthians. I should gesture to Tim. He read it. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ is what goads us, drives us. He says, who are you? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus of Nazareth, the one who is dead. And what does Jesus say to him? I mean, can you imagine Hollywood trying to craft this moment? The guy he thought was dead is alive. And here he is, wreathed in heavenly light, speaking with authority and with glory. There he is, the great king enthroned. And he speaks to the groveling little man on the dirt. And he says to him, Stand up. I'm going to trust you with my most precious message. I'm going to send you to the nations. You're going to be my beloved servant. We don't do those things when we triumph, do we? No, we crush our enemies to pieces. But not so this Christ. He gives healing to the persecutor. He makes the persecutor an apostle. He makes him a minister and witness to these things that he should go forth and reveal to the world this healing. Verse 17, I will deliver you from the Jews and the Gentiles in order that you might open their eyes, turning them from darkness to light. The Apostle Paul, having tasted the hope of Jesus Christ, having seen the heavenly light of Jesus Christ, having experienced the healing of Jesus Christ, is now an instrument, an agent of that gospel to all the world. That the darkness should be dispelled by light. That the power of Satan should be broken by the forgiveness of sins. That indeed an inheritance should be possessed by those sanctified by faith in Christ. This is the tremendous calling given to the church of Jesus Christ. We stand in a world trying to tear itself apart, seeking itself. But when we seek Christ, we put the world back together again. But when we serve Christ, we serve them peace. We open their eyes with the light of Christ. We set them free from their prisons to the power of Satan by the love of Christ. 
How do we bring peace to warring worlds? We give them Jesus. How do we bring peace between colliding cultures? We give them Jesus. He is true hope. He is the heavenly king. He is the healing of nations. And when Paul sees this, and when Paul sees this clearly, and finally at last understands, he's the hope we're looking for. He answers these questions that trouble us. He is the heavenly king we're looking for. When we enthrone him over our world, he is the healing we're looking for. When we let him open our eyes and set us free, then indeed we can be one in Christ. Paul is then compelled by this vision, verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. When I saw Jesus as hope, as heavenly king, as healing of nations, when I saw him as he really is, I did not disobey. My friends, what what moves the human heart? What moves us to speak? Verse 20, I declared he spoke. It's seeing Jesus. It's seeing Jesus as he really is. I declared first to those in Damascus. He started right where he was. Ananias had come to him on a house on the straight street that is called Straight. And that's where he began his mission. Right where he was. He began right on that street in Damascus. He went then to Jerusalem. He went then to Judea. He went then to the Gentiles at the other utter ends of the world. Fulfilling Acts 1.8. The Apostle Paul in these little refrains. Points us to the fact that wherever he went. There he carried with him this message. Jesus is the hope you're looking for. Jesus is the heavenly king you're looking for. Jesus is the healing you need. Jesus is the one. Bring him with you. It is for these reasons, he said, that the Jews seized him in the temple and tried to kill him. Talk about your all-time backfires. Paul is like, yes, I get it. All of those Old Testament scriptures from Moses to Malachi... They're all talking about Jesus. Yes, I finally get it. All of these sorrows and all of these sufferings and this horrible life that we live, it's it's all about Jesus. I finally get it. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the hope. Jesus is the king, the healing, okay. And when I went and I told them, you know what they did? They drug me outside the city and stoned me and left me for dead. You know what they did? They beat me with rods and stuck me in prison next to Silas in chains. You know what they did? They arrested me in the temple and turned me over to the Romans that they might crucify me like they did my king. Does this not seem like a complete failure? Here I am preaching. You know what brings people together? Preaching Jesus. I mean, just look at Paul. Look at all the Jewish people that loved him. Incited with them. It divided the world. 
It didn't seem on the surface to bring peace. He preached to them, repent and turn to God. Turn to this healing, turn to this hope, turn to this heavenly king. And their response was not to turn, but to punish and arrest and persecute. So where then does Paul find the happiness? Where then does Paul find the hope? He says in verse 22, having obtained help from God. What is so remarkable about Paul's recount of his life is not that he had thousands come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's that they stoned him and he kept preaching. They beat him with rods and he kept preaching. They put him in prison and he kept preaching. And he said, you know what? I know it doesn't look like it's doing much. I know it doesn't look on the surface like we're actually turning the world upside down. But guess what? We are. I know, my friends, the gospel seems so small. And the American problem seems so big. The gospel seems so small and our marriage problems, our our family problems seem so big. Our neighbor's antagonism or indifference to the gospel is so big. Jesus is so small. And yet the Apostle Paul teaches us there is help from God. True help. Heavenly hope. Healing. That all that was promised by the prophets and by Moses had indeed come true. Verse 23, that the Christ did suffer And rose again from the dead. In this truth the world is remade. In this truth the new heavens and the new earth are brought forth. In this truth a new humanity is conceived. That Christ has suffered for sin. That we should sin no more. That Christ has been raised from the dead. That in him we should have everlasting life. Ultimately what is God's solution To the fact that we have two humans that can never agree with each other or get along. Who wins? Who compromises? The gospel answer is you both die and Jesus wins. That's the gospel solution to this conflict that we see. Should it be the right or should it be the left? Neither. Let it be Jesus. Let them both repent of their sins. See his suffering for their sin. And grieve it. Let them both see his resurrection from the dead. And believe and be saved. Let us be a people who rejoice in something far higher. Far more heavenly. Far more healing and far more full of hope. Than the things we have written in the 1770s. Let it be the things that were written thousands of years ago. And at last have been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let the gospel be our hope. And let us proclaim that light to every people. Paul says to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles alike. These warring worlds. These clashing cultures. Jews and Romans. They were no match for the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I've pointed out in previous sermons, the Jewish nation, conceived primarily in Solomon's temple, Aaron's priesthood, David's kingship, does not exist. It is extinct. The Roman Empire, 
conceived in its power, does not exist. They are extinct. But the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which brings healing to the nations, which brings hope to the darkest days, which is found in the heavenly king enthroned on high, shines light on all the world and is here today. Just last night, I saw that the Yankees and Mets were playing, and as a good New Yorker, I thought Subway Series. i got to turn that on. Within a couple of minutes, I realized it was not an ordinary baseball game. You see, Billy Crystal was giving a narrative at the beginning about what happened 20 years ago yesterday. And as he was doing it, they began to weave in this thread and theme. And it was baseball that united us. And it was baseball that brought us back together. And when I thought about the way the world is in 2021 compared to 2001, I thought baseball has done a lousy job. (laughs) This is clearly a job for Jesus. Friends, this world needs Jesus. Your marriage needs Jesus. Your children need Jesus. Your job needs Jesus. Paraphrase Abraham Kuyper, there isn't one part of this creation that doesn't need Jesus. He is true hope. He is the heavenly king. He is the healing of the nations. So let's bring him everywhere we go. Jesus alone brings peace. Bring him everywhere you go. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that we have a Jesus in whom we may truly hope that all the promises of God in Him are yea and amen. He is faithful, able to save unto the uttermost. Our Father, we give you thanks that we have in Jesus a heavenly King who is above the fray, ruling and reigning over all the madness and chaos we see and feel. We give you thanks that we have a Jesus who brings to us, comes to us with true healing, who shines light into our dark places, who sets free our captives, who tears down the strongholds and sets out to leap and to dance those who were lame. We give you thanks for our Jesus and pray that you would Embed in our hearts and our minds the hope and the joy of knowing Him and of making Him known. We give you thanks, our Father, that we have seen in this text that happiness on the most unhappy days is found in knowing Jesus and in making Him known. And we pray that we would believe these things and this week live it to the glory of His name. In this name we ask. Amen.